The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Amen. All right, well, let's begin this morning by looking at uh, several scriptures. So take out your copy of God's Word. If you haven't, what a beautiful thing that we have. We have the book right here in front of us, right? God has spoken. He has communicated. We have it in front of us. If you don't have one, just stick up your hand. We've got ushers that will give you a a copy of God's Word. Um, If uh, you want it, if you've got a digital, you can pull that out too. Just don't be going over to Facebook, okay? Um, But open up, and uh, we're we're going to ultimately be in 1 Thessalonians 2 and continuing our series there. But before we get into that, I want us to just hear some verses. So you don't have to turn there. They're marked in your notes. By the way, if you don't have notes and you want to take notes, you can uh, just raise your hand and they'll get them to you. But I want to set the stage for this by reading a few different passages of Scripture, okay? So if you want to, turn there. Otherwise, turn your attention to the screen. They're in your notes so you can go back to them later. Hear Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8. They say this, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Somebody say amen. 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 The word of the Lord will stand forever. Hear this also from Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mind and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and, the, and great was the fall of it. Hear also this from 1 Peter chapter 1. He's actually quoting our passage from Isaiah. So just listen here as I read these verses. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What are the themes of these three verses? The timelessness and the strength of God's word, right? God's word is unlike anything else. He refers to nature. He refers to uh, flowers and things. And he says that God's word is not like that. Flowers, they bloom up and then they die. Grass comes up and it's green. The sun comes out, it's scorched, and it will eventually die. But God's word will never fail. God's word will never be outdated. It will never fade away. It will never be impure. It will never lose its color. It will never lose its relevance. It will always be timeless and strong and something that we can build our life upon. God's word is one of the only immovable things that we have in this life that will last forever. It is immovable. Why? Because it comes from God himself who is unchanging and good. And this redemption, this is what the church at First in Thessalonica built their life upon. They built their life, they built their church on the Bible. And so now if you haven't, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're picking up in our series on building what lasts. That's our theme. That's what this book is about. And it is teaching us at this juncture in our life 
about what we build our life upon. They were a church worth imitating. They had leaders worth following. But notice this, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Notice here, as they build what lasts, notice the two different groups. I'm going to read these verses, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16. Notice the two groups that Paul mentions here. First, the Thessalonians, who he's thankful for. They embrace God's word immediately. And then later, the second, the, in the final verses, those Jewish leaders of that day that were hostile to God's word. Listen here as I read. He says this, And we also thank God constantly for this. Thanking God constantly. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Did you see it? Did you see the two groups? Did you see the two groups there? See, Paul here, he's speaking as a leader, as a man who's planted this church, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an apostle over this church. And he's, he's saying there's nothing that a pastor is more thankful for than when his people are affected by God's word. When they've heard it and they've received it. And likewise, there is nothing a pastor is more devastated by than when people are antagonistic toward God and his word. Did you see that contrast in the passage? Did you see it? Give me a thumbs up if you saw it. Yeah? Okay, good. I want to make sure we're on the same page. So you see these two contrasts. So we can sum up this, this passage. We can sum up the verses that we even read that building what lasts happens only when we use what lasts, it's the main point, it's the nail of our passage, that building what lasts happens only when we use what lasts. And what lasts? Tell me. Easy answer. Say it louder. The Word of God, the Bible, right? We've got to be built on the Bible. And so if we want to build into our lives, this building what lasts is not, we're not talking about a building, we're talking about people. You and I are what is eternal. The church will last, yes, but it's more than just the brick and the mortar. If we want to build our life, our church, on what lasts, it must be built on the Bible. Otherwise, brothers and sisters, we're toast. We're toast. We must be a people who highly esteem God and his word. So how do we do this? How do we build our life and our church on the Bible? Well, let's look. Look there, verse 13. We must receive the word eagerly. We must receive the word eagerly. This is what Paul is so thankful for. He said it before in, at the beginning of chapter 1. He said he's constantly thanking God because of their work of faith, right? Their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. He's thanking God because they're not just uh, sitting on the bench Christians. They're actually playing Christians. They do the work of faith. They, they are living out their faith. The faith that has saved them is the faith that has changed them. And likewise, not only are they, are they living out their faith, but they have also received the word eagerly. You see that? To receive this means to invite it, to welcome it, to look for it, to desire it in your life. 
It is what you turn to. It's not something that's just a, a, a second thought or something that, you know, is like, oh yeah, maybe we should go and see what the Bible has to say about this. No, it's, it's invited, it's desired, it's wanted. We, we want to know this good news. These Thessalonians here, they heard the good news. Imagine this, you know, it, they're, they're in, in a ancient Greece at that time, Macedonia, and uh, here's a group of believers. The gospel wasn't that Jesus really hadn't been proclaimed there. There's no church, and Paul comes. He proclaims this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that people are sinful, but Jesus has come. He has lived a perfect life, and he died as a substitute for you. You got to go to jail, but Jesus did the penalty. He did the time for you, and if you repent and believe in Christ Jesus, then you will be saved. It's the same good news that you and I embrace. It hasn't changed. It's the same message, this good news of Jesus that you can put your faith in today. Same good news that we want to be about as a church here, that we want to be proclaiming to people here in even New Braunfels, even in the South. We think, well, the Christians everywhere, there's church everywhere, but not everybody has embraced the gospel and loves the Lord Jesus. We've seen a very vivid picture of that even this week, that we have a lot of work to do to reach our neighbors with the gospel. The Thessalonians, Paul came in, Silas and Timothy, they proclaimed this word and they're like, this is the good news. This is good news. Like, of course, this is good news. We've never heard about this, but who is this Jesus? How do we live in this way? And so they had this appetite that was awakened in them that wasn't there before. They recognized, look, that it was not the word of men. They, they said, you, we, you received the word. You heard it from us, and you knew that this wasn't just some slick salesman coming in with something new that's going to change your life. You get things like that? You get things in the mail like that? Like, this isn't just the word of men. This isn't another get-rich-quick scheme. But it is the word of God that was unique from any other message. It was a word that was holy and unchanging and timeless and eternal and transformative. Why? Because it comes from God himself. And so here's, here's just something that maybe some of you are familiar with, maybe not, but I've got it in your notes here because this is so important. The word of men is changing. The word of men is, is uh, you know, it comes and it goes. It's, it's never the same. It's not always absolute truth. But the word of God, here's six things that you can say about God's word. First is that it's inspired. It's in your notes here. What is the word of God? What makes it so unique is one is that this book that we have in our hands is inspired. It's inspired by God. And that's what gives it its power. That's what makes it unique because God himself is unique. God himself is holy. And because he's spoken it, he's moved in men to write these things down. It's inspired by God. Who knows where that comes from? All scripture is inspired by God, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll look at it in, in a minute as well. But we say that it comes from God through men by the Holy Spirit. So God in his infinite wisdom and his kindness, he took men that, and, uh, and moved in them to write inspired words that were preserved for the rest of humanity that would teach people how to live and how to be right with God. Wow, that's awesome. It wasn't, you know, like some of the guys weren't there and like, you know, in some trans, you know, like, right, and like, you know, possessed by something. No, it was just God moving in them, God filling these men in a special way, 40 plus authors over thousands of years writing Genesis to Revelation and it being recorded, God's people recognizing this book is different. 
this book is different, and that's how we got the Bible that we have here today. And so I don't have a, the, you know, the time now this morning to go through all that stuff, but if you're interested in how do we get our Bible, how did this, all these books, these different books, how do they get collected, I'd love to sit down over some coffee and we can talk about that. Not only is God's Word inspired, but it's also inerrant. Because it's inspired, we can say that it is inerrant, that meaning that it's without error. And in its original languages, in the Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, God's word is without error. You can trust it because why? You can trust God who is without error. And so we say God's word is inerrant. This is what makes it different than any other book. You can trust the, the, the translation that you have before you. Especially if you're using the ESV, some maybe are not so much, but you can trust the book that is in front of you. It's without error. But not only this, what is the word of God? It's sufficient. It's sufficient for your life and mine. What does that mean? It means it's enough. It means that God's word is all you need for life and godliness. If you have a decision to make, you can go to it. This book is sufficient. It will teach you how to live a wise life. It will teach you how to make a decision in light of God's word and in a way that honors God's word. Now, you might counter back, well, does it teach me how to change my oil? No, it doesn't teach, teach how to change your oil. Those are things that, you know, come and go and whatnot, but you can learn how to do it wisely. You can learn how to be a good steward of the vehicle that God has given you and to be a good steward of God's money that he's entrusted to you and, and to be a good steward of the physical capabilities that you have and how to change your oil. Scripture teaches you all those things, sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. Not only this, it's also clear. You're like, the Bible's clear? What is the word of God? Yeah, it means that it's able to be understood. Now, this is maybe a, one that uh, we take for granted now, but as uh, over time, this has been one that has, has uh, risen, uh, that we've taken for granted, because in past ages, this wasn't the case. Past, it was like, no, you can't, you can't read the Bible for yourself. You need a holy man to interpret it for you. And so for years, people would go to church, and the whole service, the songs, the scripture, everything would be in a language in Latin that they couldn't understand. Imagine coming and sitting in here and me spouting off in a language that you didn't understand and wasn't really even spoken uh, in, 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 in normal conversation. It was really just kind of a written and archaic language even at that time. But no, the Bible is meant to be understood. And how do we understand it? We understand it because the Holy Spirit lives in us and gives us eyes to be able to read it. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is, is as clear as day for us. Also, when we study the Bible, it takes hard work, Right? So that working together of the Holy Spirit, enabling you to understand it and your hard and diligent work to read it and to understand it and to think about it and to meditate upon it and whatnot. But the Bible is clear, unlike some of those maybe books you read in high school English, right? It's also clear, but it's also authoritative because it's inspired, because it's inerrant, because it comes from God, because it's sufficient. It also has a bearing upon your and my life. The Thessalonians understood this. They understood that this is from God and because we are, uh, uh, in, we are subject to God and his instructions and to live the way that he wants us to live for his glory, it has uh, uh, an authority over us. We must obey it and above all else. The Bible because it's from God, must have the loudest voice in our life competing against all the other voices of the things in our own life, right? But the Bible must have the loudest voice. We must obey its truth and what God wants us to do, even when it's unpopular, even when it will cause uh, harm, even when it will cause some sort of suffering. God's word is authoritative. It has the loudest voice in our life. And lastly, it's necessary. The Bible is necessary for salvation, 
and for our sanctification, to continue to live the way God has called, called us to live. You need the Bible, God's word. A faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it says in Romans 10. So you need the Bible. This is how the message of salvation, what Jesus did 2,000 some years ago, how it's been transferred throughout the generations. And so it is necessary. This is how it's been preserved and recorded. And so whether it's written here before us or we're quoting it, any missionary work, any sort of gospel work needs to be using the Bible. Otherwise, we don't know Jesus. Otherwise, we don't have any sort of understanding of who God is. And so it is necessary, not only for salvation, but also for your sanctification. Also for how you continue to live your life. Those are, those are top dollar words. I get it. Sanctification is a big word. Basically, it's just the process of growing more like Jesus. And so the Bible teaches us. It teaches us how to be courageous when we want to cower, right? The Bible teaches us how to be brave when we want to back down. And it teaches us to be patient when we are to be impatient. And it teaches us to be forgiving when we're bitter, and on and on and on, it teaches us how we are to live and to, to say no to our flesh, uh, fleshly desires, to say no to the things that are going to hurt us and offend God and offend others, and to say yes to the Lord. The Bible is necessary for these things, and this is what sets it apart. This is when the Thessalonians came and they heard it. They knew that this book is different. Now, they probably didn't have these, you know, this six-point little you know, thing. You can remember that, by the way, by eye, eye scan, you know, like an iPhone. It's an easy way to remember. What is the Bible? Someone asks you, what is the Bible? Well, this is what it is. It's inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. And so that is what this book that we have before us is. And so they understood that, that this is unique. There is something different about this message than any other message. So how do we receive it eagerly? How do we, how do we receive the Bible eagerly? Well, we turn to it for every decision. We let it spill over into everything that we do. We let God's word, like I said, be the highest of voice. We, we go to it regularly, and then it has this automatic influence in everything that we do. Okay, if you've come to a T in the road, or you come to a disagreement, you and your uh, spouse are wondering, uh, what, what should we do in this? So you're kind of at a standstill? Let's turn to the word of God. Let's go see what God's word has for us. We can come to it at, uh, at junctures like that, but we can also just, there's, there's this profound thing that when we are regularly in God's word, reading the Bible, digesting it, in it often, that as we shower our life like that, it influences everything else that we do, right? As we fill our mind with it in the morning, then that becomes, God's word becomes the filter by which how we live the rest of our life that day, Right? We know it, it's, it's filling, it's like, you know, God's word here is pouring in, it's pouring into the top cup. I just heard this example, and so I'm going to steal it, but it's like, you, you know, you have a tower of glasses, right? One up here, and then they kind of triangle out. And God's word is just continuing pouring into that first glass, and then spilling over into all these other things. And so here, we're pursuing Jesus, we're pursuing Jesus, we're going after him, we're reading his word so we can connect with the Lord, we're receiving it eagerly, and as we're pouring into that regularly, over, that overflow then goes into my marriage, my kids, my work, my, uh, my hobbies, all these other things. And it's just spilling over, influencing all of those other areas of my life. And if we treat our pursuit of Jesus and reading the word like it's just another glass over here, and that maybe the top's me or sports or family or whatever, we're missing the point. But God's word, pursuit of Jesus is here and it's trickling out into everything else. That's how we receive it eagerly. We, we, we go to it because we know this is the source of our life. 
How do we receive it eagerly corporately? That's really personally. But come to church expectant and eager every single time. Come here knowing that the Bible is going to be opened. You know that we are about unapologetic preaching. Each and every time you come to Redemption Bible Church, God's word is going to be open. It's going to be explained to you and it's going to be applied to a real way in your life. And so that should excite you. You should, you should be eager to come and say, God, I want to hear this. Not me. I don't know, listening to me, you, you endure me because you want this, right? You endure me because you want this. And if I'm not preaching from this, then psh, drag me out by my shirt tails, okay? But you come prepared. You come expecting. You just come with the attitude of, God, what do, you, what do you have to teach me today, Jesus? What do you have to teach me? That's how we receive it eagerly. But not only do we receive it eagerly, we receive it eagerly because we know, we recognize it's at work, right? We recognize it's at work. Look at what, how verse 13 ends. It says, you didn't receive it, you, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's at work in you believers. The Bible is not a dead old book from history. It's not just this textbook, but Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is an alive book. This is a, it's a creature here before us that is at work and is doing this profine, re, uh, precise, rather refining work in your life, moving and changing and molding you to be like Jesus. And so this is an active work. It's, it's active in those who are believers. Our minds have been opened up to us. So how does it work? What does 2 Timothy 3 say? I quoted it earlier. It says all scripture is what? Inspired by God, right? And what? profitable. It's profitable for these four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you're doing bad works, sorry, the Bible's not your go-to. If you're doing good works, who wants to do good works? You want to do good works? I want to do good works. I want to honor the Lord. I know it's not earning my salvation, but I want to do things that honor the Lord. Where do we go for it? The scriptures. It's profitable. It's useful. It teaches us. It reproves us. Say, hey, don't go there. No, 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 no. You're off the track. Corrects us. Say, here's how you get back on. This is how you honor me. And then it trains us in righteousness. And this is how you stay on the track. Does these things. What else is it? The Bible is a guide, right? Psalm 119, 105. What does it say? Your word is a lamp to my feet, right? What does it say? And, uh, light to my path. We're all moving, right? None of us are stagnant. We're not just standing still, but we're moving. God's word shines the light in a dark world where we don't know where to go. It opens it up for us. It is at work. D.L. Moody said this. He says, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Do you agree with that? I'm just reading like a textbook, trying to, you know, puff up our knowledge, try to understand all these things, but it's meant to transform us. It's meant to, it's meant to change us. D.L. Moody's a cool guy. He's, you know, God bless the school that D.L. Moody founded. It's my alma mater. It's where I went and learned the Bible, learned how to be a pastor and all that. And this is what it is. So we must, we must be a people continually changed by the book, Right? We witnessed this these last few days. God's word was open four different times while we were at man camp. And I'll tell you what, these men are, are, are different men. 
after each time, God's word just filleting us, like Hebrews 4 said, just discerning, just like, yeah, that's, I'm off there. Yeah, I am not honoring you there. It's kind of just doing its work. It's precision work in our lives. God's word is changing our lives. And so we can't, like I've said, we can't approach God's word like a textbook, right? But more like a phone. Pick up the phone. God is speaking to you. He has something to say. And you're, you're, you're missing the point if you're just approaching it like a textbook. But pick it up. It's a phone. God's given it to you and it's sitting there. Phone's ringing. Is your phone on silent? Click it on. Click, back the, click the ringer on. He's calling. He wants to meet with you. He wants to teach you. You're feeling dry. You're not growing. You feel like, like nothing's going my way. Meanwhile, your Bible's just sitting there untouched. It's time to open it up. It's time to turn on the ringer. Time to pick it up. Start in Psalm 1 and read a psalm every day. If you're out of the habit, if you're out of the habit of God's word changing you and working in you and receiving it eagerly, start in Psalm 1. You can read there tonight. Tomorrow read Psalm 2 and just continue to read. You'll get 150 days in. There's 150 psalms. Psalm 119 is pretty long, so by the time you get to that, you can split it up if you want. But there's just a place to start. So how, how's God been speaking to you through his word? How's he been changing you? I really want to know that. That's why, uh, that's why I'm a pastor. Because I love these things. I love God's word and I love God's people. And when those two things collide and God's people give way to God's word, that's what it's all about. That's transformation. That's sanctification. And so I'd love to know how God has been using his word. What's a, what's a passage? What's a scripture that God has been using in your life lately? You got one? Does one come to mind? Right at the end of the service here, I'm, I'm uh, prompting you for this. At the end of the service here, not right now, but if there's a verse that comes to mind, write it down right now. Because at the end of the service, we're going to have just kind of a spontaneous time where you can come and share a verse or two that God has uh, been using in your life. I want to know that. And it's going to bless the rest of us. And so at the very end, not right now, just write it down. We've got a little bit more work to do. We're only in the first verse, so we've got a little more work to do. Don't worry, we're wrapping it up. But, but at the end of the sermon, I want you to, uh, I want you to share that with us. So we'll have a mic there, and uh, I'll give you some more instructions. But recognize that the Bible is working. Recognize it's at working. It's at work in us, and it's also at work in others. Look at verse 14 now. He says, you brothers became imitators. So we are to replicate good examples. We've been talking a lot about this uh, a lot lately, right? The Bible's work, it doesn't just stop at intake, but it's meant to be lived out in community with one another. And so this has made its way, I think, into every message, every passage that we've had from 1 Thessalonians 2. That we are meant to live in community, and we are meant to imitate or replicate or model our lives after other examples. And it's interesting here that Paul is speaking to a largely non-Jewish group of people, but he's saying you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea or Israel, that, that bigger region there. And he's saying you were imitating those people, that they were modeling both their personal and their church life after those people. They're looking to them that have gone before them. Those churches that were just, you know, only maybe a few decades older than them, they were modeling their life, replicating these examples of how do they live out the Christian life. They found a people that loved the word, that were following hard after Jesus, and they lived it out. Discipleship is vital, isn't it? 
This is how we continue to live our life. We must be multiplying. The spiritual family tree must continue branching out, branching out through us. Woe to us if, if in the, you know, the metaphorical family tree that over here, this is where we are and it just stops at us. But we must be a multiplying people in our life and in the church life as we plant more churches and as we, as, as we make more believers. And so how do you do this in your life? How do you do it? You find other believers. You find those people that are receiving God's word, that that is obvious and they are changed by it, whose obedience and growth are, are unmistakable. That they are clearly growing in the Lord. Get to know them, follow them, learn from them. That's why we develop leaders here. So that can be obvious. So there are people here. There's no shortage of, uh, of people to follow here within our church and within our influence here. It's why we invest in small groups because that's why we do it. That's why we're launching these things. That's why we're developing those leaders now and we'll be soon launching those. So stay tuned here. We're going to have signups here in December and we'll really fully launch them in January. Just mark that down. Save a night of the week on your calendar and make that a priority. Because here's how you can replicate good examples, people that genuinely want to live in light of God's word and follow Christ. And so stay tuned for that. If you want to be prepared for that, like I said, sign up. Also, uh, Uncommon Leadership 101 is coming up in December, that second Saturday there in December. That's for small group leaders, yes, but it's for anybody. If you just want the insight, like, what do you mean? You say small groups, how do you do it? I've been a part of this kind of small group and this kind of small group. Well, what do you do as Redemption Bible Church? That is the class. That's the time to come to, and it will be awesome. So, Sign up. Let me know if you want to come to that, and it'll be great. So replicate good examples. That's what they did. But notice how specifically they replicated them. You see this at the end of verse 14? Look there with me. Look. He says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. This is a very real way we replicate these good examples is that we rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in suffering. He's saying, yeah, you follow their good example, but it wasn't just easy peasy Christian life in Jerusalem and in Judea, in a predominantly Jewish country where they, they were guilty of killing the Messiah. They, they, they rejected their Savior. And now these people are saying, no, he was the Savior. And they're saying, no, we weren't. Well, they were the ones in control, so they could persecute them. Literally, through martyring them, through uh, pushing them out, uh, family and the marketplace, other religions, even the government was against them. The same was true in Thessalonica. They looked to the example of how those uh, believers there in Judea suffered, the hands of their own countrymen, and they faced it even here now in Thessalonica. Go back, read Acts 17. That's the account of when Paul and Silas were there planting the church and uh, had great success, and then they were, excuse me, driven out. And interestingly enough, the guy that, whose uh, house they started the church in, a guy named Jason. Go read it. It's fascinating. Some point tonight, if you want to. Jason, he's drug out. And they're saying, this man, he was, he was a part of these guys who caused, who caused this big ruckus, who was saying that there's another king in this world other than King Caesar. And that was treason. That was, that was the worst. And they were suffering for that. And so isn't there great solidarity? There great solidarity knowing that for all of Christian history, this is the normal experience to suffer for our faith. There's great solidarity knowing that the first believers faced it. Here, even what we are experiencing now. This is part of building what lasts both then and now. And if it's not costing us something, if it's not, then something is wrong. If there's, not, if there's nothing that is like rubbing, not to say that we live offensively, but the message is offensive. 
So if your faith doesn't cost you anything, then it's not worth anything either. First Peter has a lot to say about this. We're not to be surprised. Christ suffered himself. His people always have, and thus we can rejoice standing together with Christ. So again, we, can, we, we see this. We, we saw this. Events like what happened in Sutherland Springs <laughs> bring this to life. It shock us, but they should not surprise us, right? It's normal. People, God's people have always been targeted and will continue to be. Continue to be. So we can't be numb to the pain, but Jesus warned us. It's, it's going to happen. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24. Romans 8 warns us that even creation is itself is groaning and that the suffering, trials, persecutions are increasing in both their intensity and their frequency as the end draws near. As time goes on, he uses the example of childbirth, right? And without getting graphic, anybody who's been around that know that as contractions go on and as the end comes near and as the, as the baby is born, those contractions increase in what? In both intensity and frequency. Some of the ladies are like, amen, right? Increase in that way. And as time goes on, this is like labor pains. And let me tell you guys and gals, as believers in life, there is no epidural for this. There's no epidural for getting away from the, the pain of, and suffering that comes with the Christian life. And so we endure with joy, knowing what it produces in us, knowing that God is good. And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to run away. We don't have to get a, give up and worry about it. We know the ending, right? Is the ending a good ending? It is. And when we know there's a good ending, that motivates us. We can endure the ups and downs until we get there, right? If you already know you're going to win the game, you can endure sometimes when you're down because you know the end is good. So under, arm yourself with this understanding. God is good. He's sovereign. His promise of salvation will hold true. We can trust him. We can trust him. This is how we build our life on what lasts. Amen? Because look at these last two verses. We're going to just look at them real briefly. Here's how you destroy your life. Here's how you destroy your life. You build your life on the man-made religion or you build your life on temporary toys. You build your life apart from something other than what endures, other than the word of God and on Christ Jesus himself. This is what will happen. You will destroy your life if you reject the Lord and his people. So verse 15, here's, here's God's own people. He's speaking, you know, well, let me just say that sometimes verses like this are used for anti-Semitism to like hate the Jewish people. And we can't do that. There's no place for that. We as believers should especially not. Um, but sometimes people use it and say, well, the Jews did this. Well, yes, they did. Those Jewish leaders at that time are guilty of this thing. But that doesn't mean that we now are hateful towards the entire Jewish people as an ethnic people group. Okay? But what they did at that day, they rejected the Lord and his people. You see this here? They killed the Lord Jesus. They rejected him in a very real way. And the prophets... They drove us out. They displease God and oppose all mankind. So not only do they reject the Lord and his people, but they also resist the Lord and his mission. You will destroy your life if you do these very same things. If you resist the Lord and his mission, his mission of advancing the gospel. See, look at what else they did. Not only did they kill it, but then everything, all the, the outworkings after Jesus was killed, then it was just like an explosion of growth in the church and of believers and so here he's, he's saying they even tried to hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That as it went beyond the Jewish people, they're like, hey, this is ours. We're hoarding it. You can't tell others the gospel, especially not those non-Jewish people, especially not these Greeks and other people that are, uh, you know, that are outside of us. Like, no, 
No, but that's the mission of God, right? It's a great commission. To tell others about Jesus, to make disciples. If you resist the Lord and his mission, you will destroy your life, such as they did. But if you reject, you resist it in your own life, you're guilty of the very same things they did here. You will fill up your own cup of sin. See how it ends there? Strong language. So always to fill up the measure of their sins. The longer you persist in this, just like filling up your cup. God's got, we don't know how much it is or whatnot, but uh, you have this cup here. Every time you sin, you're just, you're just filling that up until God says, all right, enough. Thankfully, God is long-suffering. He's patient. That's why evil persists, because God is he's not wishing that any should perish. And so he's giving a, a long leash, wanting them to turn to the Lord. But there is a time when our cup is filled and wrath will come at last. Ultimately, that's at our death, right? When God says, all right, enough, and you die apart from Christ, the wrath has come upon them at last. That's terrible news, right? Terrible news, terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But we don't have to do that today, right? Receive the word eagerly, right? To know that it's at work changing you, replicating good examples, of rejoicing even when it's hard, of counting the cost, that's how we follow the Lord. That's how we build a life that is immovable. That's how we build our life on the rock. That's how we, how we build a church and, a, and a, a family of believers here. This is how we build what lasts when we do it on what lasts. If you're not a part of that, receive the Lord today. Receive him today. Receive it eagerly. And let's talk about that. Can we be a people who highly esteem this book? Can we be a people like that? Are you in? Do you love this book? Do you love the word here? Would be a people who love the Bible from here into to eternity. Not because we worship a book. Let me just be clear on that. That's not because we worship this book, but because we worship the one who is revealed and speaks through this book, right? That's why we're changed. That's why we do. So let's be a people that way. Would you pray with me?